Too many companies are stuck building pretty pie charts and bouncy bar charts and dashing dashboards that really just inform people, but they don't diagnose anything. They don't really predict anything. They don't prescribe anything. They don't automate anything. And so I think there's really an imperative to move up that analytic value chain. And without a good smattering of data literacy and mm -hmm. understanding of the differences between those styles of analytics, it's hard for a company or hard for business executives to get there. I wanted to say a big thank you to our sponsors, Talent Insights. Talent Insights are Australia's leading data specialist recruitment business. They are experts in recruitment strategy and delivery for analytics and data teams. They are the go-to recruitment business for all your data roles in Australia, and they can help both with permanent hires and short-term project-focused data resources. I've used Talent Insights in the past, and I've always found them fantastic to work with. Visit them at talentinsights.com.au. Introducing an exclusive new webinar series on advancing AI. It's available only online. It won't be released through the podcast, but you can join live to these webinars. So join us over breakfast from February to April by signing up in the link in the show notes. We will be interviewing leaders in the data and AI space. They will guide you through the hype and maze of technology to achieve the business transformation we all want from AI. Whether you're looking to leverage AI to optimize the customer experience or to improve your business operations, this series underpins the core elements crucial to your company's AI strategy. Featuring guests from around the globe, including people from companies like NAB, Finair, Woodside, etc. Check out the schedule, sign up through the link in the show notes or visit datafuturology.com for more information. I'm super excited to bring you this new series. Hope to see you there. Hi, this is Felipe Flores. Welcome to another episode of Data Futurology. Today, we're going to be speaking about data monetization, data management, measurement of the value of the data, and how we can think about data as an asset and as a competitive advantage for our organizations and how we can really put data into that asset class that organizations have where data is often spoken about as an asset class, but in a lot of places, not yet put into the right place as a mm. as an asset. For that, we got Doug Laney. He is a Data and Analytics Innovation Fellow at West Monroe, author of Infonomics, also a lecturer at the University of Illinois, and has a course on Coursera on this topic. Doug, you've been doing this for over 20 years. I always enjoy the conversations with industry veterans. And in your case, you've given so much to the industry over time, starting with, you know, coining Infonomics over 20 years ago, I think. You brought in the discussion about the three Vs of big data. Mate, it is a pleasure to have you on the show. How are you doing today? The pleasure is mine, Felipe. Thank you. Oh, this is great. So I was thinking for the few people that, that may not know you, could you give us a, a quick overview of your background and then really came to get into, into Infonomics and your thoughts there? All right. So um, I grew up here outside Chicago. And uh, for those of you who are viewing, you can see the, the skyline that's from our, our roof deck here in, in uh, Chicago on the north side of Chicago. So it's the view of the, the skyline. Um, but I've moved around a bit. I've lived in Ottawa. Um, and in Denver and San Diego and Sydney, a bit of time in Brazil as well, and also wow. in, in Auckland. I think, that, I think that pretty much covers it. But uh, family's here in Chicago, so it keeps bringing, bringing us back. 
Um, I started my career with uh, then Arthur Anderson mm -hmm. um, before it was even Anderson Consulting. So I was with like Arthur Anderson Consulting. Um, and uh, West Monroe, interestingly enough, is a, a, a consultancy somewhat uh, born from the ashes of Arthur Anderson. Mm -hmm. Um, and many of you know, Arthur Anderson kind of went defunct after the Enron, you know, fiasco. And so uh, some people from Arthur Anderson decided to build a, you know, a different kind of consulting firm. And so that's what uh, we're with. So I, I've kind of come full circle a little bit, <laughs> as it were. Um, I was at, uh, I studied at the University of Illinois in, in Champaign. It was uh, really the top three or so computer science school in the country at the time. And being a state school, it was, uh, it, it was nice and inexpensive. So that was great. And I studied uh, math and computer science, but uh, quickly I found that the math was a little bit too hairy for me. <laughs> and I was more interested in the business aspects of computing, mm. um, having been involved in kind of a business club in, in, in high school. And, um, but at the time, the university didn't have a, um, uh, an MIS type of degree, a you know, management information systems degree. Um, that kind of combined business and computer science. So I designed one mm. and it was unanimously rejected by the committee <laughs> because they said, um, they said, why would anyone want to use computers for business? This was 1984. <laughs> it was an engineering school. So we can give them a break. But anyway, we got the, uh, finally got it approved and I ended up getting a degree in uh, what I call software engineering and business administration. Um, so yeah, off I went into the real world. So I spent a number of years at uh, Anderson Consulting and uh, then went into the expert systems world, working with, with mm -hmm. some AI startups um, and kind of became interested in how data needed to be organized in order to process rule-based engines and natural language applications and things like that. So that kind of got me into, you know, involved in the, in the, in the data world. I guess at, at uh, Anderson Consulting as well, I was the data administrator on a 400-person uh, project for Sears. We were rebuilding wow. Sears, um, one of Sears' major applications. And uh, so, yeah, I always had kind of an interest in data, but um, it actually goes back to um, my, my interest in data and information really, really goes back, as I write in, in my book, goes back to um, the, the uh, story when I was uh, five years old. My, my father woke me up out of bed. And he said, Douglas, it's time. I said, okay. So we went down and to the television and adjusted the, the rabbit ears on the, the, the black and white television <laughs> set, like millions of people, you know, billions of people around the world were doing. And we, uh, we, he said, don't ever forget that you saw this. And we watched the first steps, uh, the moon, we watched the moon landing, Amazing. the first steps on the moon. And, um, there's a great movie, great Australian movie about, about the moon landing, the dish, you know, that, that film? No. Wonderful, hilarious, um, kind of a kind of a, a co comedy about one of the satellite dishes. I forget yep. what the town was outside of Sydney, uh, maybe a hundred miles in, inland, and uh, about the, the people who who ran this this uh, satellite dish to capture the images while the Earth was, you know, away, while the, while North America was facing away from the moon. Anyway, great great film. But um, my father, who was a, a world class engineer, as I, I wrote in the book. Um, he was more impressed by the fact that we were seeing this and that the information about the moon landing was streaming into our living room than he was about all the electromechanical you know, components that enable us to, to get there and, and land and, 
and return. Um, so I, I guess that made an impression on me from a young age, and I was always interested in collecting information and making lists and things like that. So you know, here I am today. <laughs> It's amazing. Um, yeah. So Kim uh, says that it was the dish uh, in Parks, Parks, right? Parks, Parks, New South Wales. South Wales. Sorry, thanks, Kim. Sam Neill, great film. I love Sam Neill. Yeah. Oh, yeah, same. I haven't seen that one. Oh, great. Yeah. great Even though he's not Australian, but he's a good guy anyway, right? <laughs> I think he's actually a Kiwi, right? All right. Yeah. Nice one. Yeah. Um, and man, that is, that is impressive. So, and, and for the, um, before we jump in for the people that, that may not know, um, infonomics and, and, uh, this, right. this, this term, I'll show you uh, this mindset. Book. Yeah, go for it. All right. Here we go. Should have had it ready. There's a, there's the book. Oh, it's not showing up on the, cause I've got a background anyway. We'll um we'll put the the link uh, to the book on, yeah, the, sure. on the show notes and mm. um and I saw that it's also on, on Audible which is great uh, and for people. Book Audible and and hard hardcover. Amazing, amazing. Um, so for for the people that don't know Infonomics, uh, could you describe it for us? So Infonomics is the concept um, of 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 managing, monetizing, and measuring data as an actual asset. You know, a lot of people today talk about data as an asset, but they don't actually really treat it like like one. And we kind of get into the reasons of, of why. But um, uh, about 20 years ago, um, the, the background on kind of the story is the the 9-11 terror attacks. Hmm. I don't know if you, you knew that, but the yeah. um, I was an analyst with Gartner, you know, the IT research mm -hmm. and advisory firm, <clears throat> the large presence in, in Australia as well. Mm. And the... Um, some clients started contacting us in the aftermath, lamenting not only the, the tragic loss of life, but also the loss of their data. Right? This was in the days before a lot of cloud um, and a lot of um, offsite backups. Mm. So a lot of the companies in the Twin Towers in, in New York lost their data and it became a real existential event for them. They didn't know who their customers were. They didn't have contracts. They lost all sorts of records. They didn't know who their employees were. They lost employee records. And so um, naturally what they did, some of these companies was submit claims to their insurance companies for the value of the data they lost. Mm -hmm. And the insurance company said, sorry, um, you know, we don't consider data to be property <laughs> and therefore it's not covered by your property and casualty policies. So that kind of caught my attention. And I was like, wow. Um, okay, well, boom. And I yeah. said, yeah, I, I always thought data was an asset. So I crack open my accounting books and I, I, you know, learned that an asset is something that is owned or controlled, exchangeable for cash, right? And is something that generates probable future economic benefits. Hmm. Well, there's no argument that, that data meets the criteria of an asset. It's just that it's never been recognized as one by, um, by the accounting profession. And, and so as I start to look into this, um, Lo and behold, the, the insurance industry in the U.S. updates the standard policy template that's used by all insurers to explicitly exclude oh. electronic data from, from insurance policies, from property insurance policies. They did that a month after 9-11. And then not to be outdone, the accounting industry, a couple of years later, um, the accounting profession globally decided, well, if data is not property, we're not going to recognize it as an asset. And therefore, if, even if you wanted to include the value of your company's data assets on your balance sheet, mm. you now no longer can, can do that. Yeah. Right. 
And then the courts got involved and the courts are confused on the matter. Um, the U.S. government got involved on how to update a 1930s style accounting system into the 21st century. And of course, you know, given that it was a, you know, a government hearing, of course, nothing ever happened <laughs> from that. Mm -hmm. um, and so here we are today with most companies trying to become more data driven, more data savvy, wield data as an actual asset, but are being held back by the keepers of the definition of what constitutes property and what constitutes an asset. And so Infonomics is kind of cuts through that and says, listen, forget about what the accountants and the lawyers and the insurance companies say, it's incumbent upon you as a business in, mm -hmm. in, in today's data driven economy to actually you know, treat data as an asset. Now, the, the problem is that because there's no imperative to measure data, Right? There's the old adage, you can't measure what you don't manage, right? Or you can't manage what you don't measure. And because companies don't measure their data, they don't manage it as well as they should. And because mm -hmm. they don't manage it as well as they should, they're not able to monetize it or generate as much value from it. So it becomes a vicious cycle for many companies. And the idea behind Infonomics is to re kind of reverse that curse and make it more of a, a virtuous cycle. Yeah. That is fantastic. So, and yeah. I... I um, I really like that you've brought um, really good structure and frameworks to to what is often a a problem that you know that is quite threatening for for people uh, or quite intimidating, I should say, quite intimidating to jump into because they see it as so amorphous and mm -hmm. and uh, you know hard to grapple with. Yeah. Um, but uh, could could you tell us about some of some of the things that you? That you've seen company companies implement uh, when it comes to to getting into infonomics and and how that's worked for them. Well, I mean, there have been some tremendous examples of how companies have generated measurable value from data, and I have you know been involved in, in all of them. But over the past, let's say, ten years or so, I've compiled over five hundred stories of how organizations are using data and analytics in innovative and, and high value ways. Mm. And uh, so I'm actually finishing up a, a next book on that. Um, Great. I'm not sure what the title is going to be, but something around, you know, the art of the possible with data or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, and uh, interestingly, so the book is going to have these use cases in it, but then I've also conscripted a hundred of my <laughs> friends around the industry to provide commentary on each of these stories. Yes. So it's not only going to be a book of stories, but a book of ideas from a hundred different data and analytics experts around the world. Um, not just, you know, I, I could have just written it myself and, and analyzed all the stories myself, but that would have been kind of, kind of ended up, uh, it would have been a bit homogeneous, right? So, um, yeah, so, so there's some you know, great stories in, in the book of companies using data in, in innovative ways. You know, most recently I've, I've worked with a, um, a large retailer who is trying to prove the benefits of its data governance. Mm -hmm. um, um, operation. And, um, it, and so we, we adapted some of the data valuation models that I published in Infonomics to help them quantify the economic value of certain data governance you know, functions and, and metrics. Um, I worked with recently with a large pharmaceutical company that's been in the news a lot lately. Um, and uh, I helped them quantify the value of their data to help um, them justify uh, it, licensing it and also ingesting it into their data lake and, and data, you know, data warehouse. So to kind of prove the benefits of that data. Um, I worked with a, a, a wholesaler, a large wholesaler, multi-billion dollar wholesaler 
to help them ideate around new ways to generate value from their data. And in mm. fact, most of my work right now with West Monroe is working with clients to help them generate business cases and, yep. and use cases and ideas about how to generate new data-driven value streams. And so for this um, wholesaler, we ended up coming up with uh, just the top three ideas where they estimated, this is their CFO, estimated the value of these use cases at over $100 million. Yeah. Uh, you know, annually to, to the business. I believe So it. there's a, just a lot of latent data, a lot of underutilized data out there within organizations. Um, and you know, I think the, <clears throat> I think there's an imperative for, for companies to think about how to um, evolve their data center from a cost center into a value center, into a, a profit center. And um, that's really kind of the goal of, of the whole data monetization approach that I've written about and now are now I'm in consulting on. Ah, it's it's fantastic. It's fantastic, and and um, so um, yeah, really keen to to um, get into the um, get into the the valuation of the business and creating business mm-hmm. um, ideas and business cases for for right. data monetization. Mm-hmm. Uh, before that, I, I wanted to ask you about um, what what do organizations need to implement or or um, what what functions should they be considering in order to be able to make the most, um, I guess, to do infonomics well, uh, to to be able to get value from uh, from the data and and I love mm. that you have a, a holistic perspective that you know includes yeah. the technology, the technical, the business. Uh, so what what do you think uh, businesses should implement or what type of organization? Mm. You know, there's, there's a lot of have? things that that have to go right. Yeah, and so. Um, I'm not going to say, you know, data science and analytics is, is the easy part or technology mm. is the easy part. You know, it, it's, it's difficult. But I think um, the most difficult parts are the, the, the human aspect of, of analytics. And that is actually implementing the ideas. Yep. You know, there are so yep. many great ideas out there. And I've helped companies generate hundreds or maybe thousands of ideas on how to leverage their data in new and innovative ways. But it's taking those ideas from conception into actual action Mm. That is is the hard part. Um, I think uh, the big issue right now is is the lack of data literacy, the yes. lack of understanding of the power and value of of data, or how to take those next steps to uh, to take your data and take your analytics into into a, um, a more operational realm within the organization. And um, so we're doing a lot of work with clients to help them raise their level of of data literacy. In fact, I just uh, gave a um, a data literacy program to the senior executives at one of Latin America's largest conglomerates mm-hmm. and um, to help them fully understand what does data mean? What is data architecture? Why is it challenging? Why use a pie chart versus a bar chart versus a, you know, what's a, what's a bubble chart and mm-hmm. um, how to communicate with data and how to communicate with data people about what your needs are, how to generate hypotheses. Um, too many companies are stuck building pretty pie charts and, bouncy bar charts and dashing dashboards that really just inform people, but they don't diagnose anything. They don't really predict anything. They don't prescribe anything. They don't automate anything. And so I think there's really an imperative to move up that analytic value chain. And without a good smattering of data literacy and mm-hmm. understanding of the differences between those styles of analytics, it's hard for a company or hard for business executives to get there. Um, I think it's also... Um, become difficult. It's difficult to decouple data and technology. 
Mm. Um, I, I listened yes. to, and I just listened to a speaker last night and I listened to you know, these news broadcasts and you know, everybody refers to Google and Facebook and Uber um, as, as technology companies. They are not technology companies. They're data companies. Mm -hmm. They have almost no technology or very kind of insignificant technology. They're data companies. And so to continue to refer to them as technology companies perpetuates this notion of the, the, the coupling of yes. data and technology. And companies that are doing a really good job, um, and I remember uh, down in Australia, um, and I, I don't know if they mind me mentioning them, but, but Kohl's, you know, Kohl's um, yeah. grocery department store yeah. um, did a great job of bifurcating their data and technology organizations um, where there's a CIO or a CTO who's managing technology and a chief data officer who's responsible for the data assets. Mm -hmm. You know, there once was a day where it made sense for data and technology to be tightly coupled. The database was buried within the application, but today that's not the case. And if we really want to expand the, the ways that we're leveraging data, we need to decouple it from technology, not just physically, but mentally, you know, con conceptually as well, and, and organizationally. Yes, yes. Yeah. I think that's, that's um, <clears throat> the organizational ch change sends such a strong signal of, yeah. of where the organization wants to be, and that definitely yeah. starts to yeah. go into the, the culture. Um, oh, so tell me about the, the, the data valuation side mm -hmm. and... Um, how how can people tackle that that problem um, when yeah obviously when there's there's so much data uh, that an organization yeah. might have how can so, they jump into into it yeah so working with some of the the companies in the twin towers after 9/11 we had to help them um, figure out how to understand the cost of of the, the data that was lost mm. there's a couple of different ways to, we looked at it one was what did it cost you to generate or collect that data in the first place right mm -hmm. and the second was what was the uh, the loss you know the business the, the impact on the business from the loss of that data so we looked at that a couple of different ways but then I I you know, quickly realized that there are other ways to value um, any asset you know there's the cost approach mm -hmm. there's also the market approach so mm -hmm. what is that assets? value in a, in a you know, open marketplace. Uh, what can you sell for it? What can you trade for it? And then there's the income approach. What is that assets contribution to a revenue yeah. stream or, or to expense savings? And so those are the main mm -hmm. ways that accountants or valuation experts value any kind of asset. And they're just as applicable to, to data as they are to any other asset. It's just, again, that the accounting profession doesn't really support this, yeah. this notion. Um, and uh, so, so I've been working with companies to help them understand and, and juxtapose those. So like, if your data costs you this much to, to generate, well, you, or, or collect, you wanna generate more value. We wanna generate margin on top of that. So you wanna find new ways to leverage data. And the good news is that data is what economists would call a non-rivalrous, non-depleting, regenerative asset. So it's unlike oil. You know, people often talk about data as being the new oil and that's kind of, somewhat ridiculous because yeah. when you consume a drop of oil, it goes away. You can only consume a drop of oil one way at a time. And when you consume oil, it doesn't create more oil. Data is very different in that regard. And companies that get that are building really winning business models. And not just, I'm not just talking about the Digirati or you know mm. uh, the, the Facebooks and Ubers, but companies internally are finding ways to leverage data in multiple ways simultaneously and continuously and use that data to, to create more data to create kind of a flywheel effect as Jeff Bezos you know, refers to, to at Amazon. And um, 
uh, and, and so that, that's where, you know, that's where the kind of the, the, the magic happens. Um, so. I love it. I love all the, the different perspectives because it definitely helps uh, clarify. Mm. And, and, and this is, you know, some um, right. another another part of the framework that you've um, mm. developed and, and helped bring to people that is helped so, so helpful. Um, and I, um, I, I would always, I, at least in my case, I find that I um, coming, well, Coming across your your books, uh, your your book, um, uh, some time ago, at least at least a year ago. I know it's been out for for two or three years. Uh, I remember thinking, oh, I wish I wish I read this earlier. Um, mm-hmm. In in particular, I I went into uh, to work at a uh, at a big bank, one of the largest in in Australia, and I was on the B two B side, so business right. to business, um, very large, very large corporate multinationals, mm-hmm. publicly listed companies. And people internally in the bank and externally told me, why are you going there, you know, as a, as a head of data science? There's no data there. They have 30,000 customers. Crazy. Um, yeah. What we ended up doing is um, leveraging the data from the retail division, specifically credit cards, account transactions, mm-hmm. analyzing it to help those business customers make decisions on where to put their next um, mobile mm-hmm. phone towers, um, where to uh, open right. their next shop. Uh, how to better manage inventory according to the people that are going to their to their mm-hmm. stores, mm-hmm. and um, and that was that was a, a, a big success, and, and mm-hmm. uh, we ended up building that as a um, in the organization as a as a big offering and a team, and definitely mm-hmm. like went on to uh, to generate over a hundred million dollars. So as you were talking about the other example, I was like, I totally totally see yeah. it. Um, but my my question is that I see it now in retrospect, and when I went into that role. It took me a long time to to see it, to see the potential, to think about what we could do, and then a long time to make it happen. Um, and that's where I was like, oh, I should have read Doug's book earlier. That would have been amazing. Um, <laughs> well, I, I tell you, my book doesn't solve the problem on on how to move the move the corporation, right? Mm-hmm. It, it gives you some methodologies on how to become more. Um, how, how to kind of measure your maturity and, and mature on multiple dimensions, including culture, but it's it's not really a not really a cookbook on on data literacy or, or change management. No, no. But yeah. tell me tell me about the the um, either the idea generation or or where to focus the the efforts. Right, on, right. Yeah, on on um, getting value out of data. So I'll tell you a little bit about the you know the workshops that I run, and they're based on on kind of the outline that I. I created it, you know, documented in, in the book. Um, so the first step is to run these workshops on, on generating ideas. And so we like to get business leaders, people who understand the data, and ideally a key customer, supplier, partner in the room as well, mm-hmm. um, because we might want to develop data products for them. Mm. Um, and, and so we run through a number of exercises. The first one is kind of laying out all the data, like what data do we have? If we intersected it in new and in integrative, innovative ways, we might learn something or uh, you know, be able to create a new kind of saleable data, data product. Um, so it's really just kind of making sure everybody in the room understands what data is available. And we're not only looking at what data is available within the four walls of the organization, but what data is available externally as well. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I tell companies your your biggest data asset is probably not one 
that you're managing yourself, your biggest data asset is, is out there in the world. It's, it's social media data. It's um, about yourselves or your customers or your, or your competitors. It's open data sources from government and other public entities. It's um, um, thousands of data brokers who are mm -hmm. harvesting and collecting and packaging up unique data sources to provide insights. It is, um, uh, they say open data, social media. Oh, it's there's web content that can be harvested. So scraping others' websites can gather a lot of data as well. So um, companies that are looking externally are, are, are really benefiting today, especially in times like these, mm. um, where, where COVID, where, where the pandemic has broken almost every company's forecasting models, right? Especially if those forecasting models are based on their own historical data and not open to or considering what's happening in, in the world at large. Um, we refer to that as the difference between trend-based modeling and driver-based modeling. So companies that have trend-based models that primarily look at their own data, those models are broken. They're simple models and they're, they're pretty much broken today. Companies are trying to evolve now to more driver-based models where they look externally for leading indicators mm -hmm. of, their, of their business, right? And, um, that's, that's not an easy switch to make, right? Data scientists can, can certainly help do that, but you need a lot of data to do that. And if you don't have anyone curating data, if you don't have a data curator, right, in your organization, then it's gonna be very hard to, to identify and find those data sources. You know, they've called um, data scientists the sexiest job of the 21st century, right? I think probably close behind is the data curator or the data yeah. librarian, right? Um, you know, most companies have an entire department dedicated to procuring, uh, here we go, to, to procuring uh, office supplies, right? You can't see them, mm -hmm. but um, don't have a single person dedicated to procuring data supplies. That's a tragic mistake in, in today's, today's world. Hugely, hugely tragic. Um, yeah. And we, we are getting uh, questions from the audience, sure. which is fantastic. Okay. So we're using the Q&A functionality mm -hmm. and related to, to this one, um, Ron asks, how, uh, how do we recon reconcile data with intellectual property? Um, yeah, so intellectual property takes a couple different forms. There's tangible and intangible you know, um, intellectual property. And um, so let's just focus on the tangible intellectual property like patents mm -hmm. or copyrights or trademarks. And it's a great question because those are all um, recognized uh, intangible assets on the balance sheet. And so I think there's no reason why data shouldn't be a, a, a recognized and tangible asset as well. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think they're, they're great examples of why we should be recognizing data as an asset. Yeah, no, 100, 100%. Um, and when you were talking about, you know, the, the first party, second party and third party data and focusing on, on leading mm -hmm. indicators. Yeah, I, I, I really like the, the, the view that you, uh, that you put yeah. forward. Um, and and within that, you you also spoken about um, about getting more second party party data and and sometimes even even uh, having bartering uh, transactions where where right. we'll help you uh, acquire some more data. Could you tell us? That's a bit right. About we didn't that? talk about all the ways to monetize data. So, um, so I, I've kind of broken them down into a couple um, main forms or patterns, um, and this comes from analyzing all of these use cases that I compiled. Mm -hmm. And I've determined that there's about eight or nine kind of standard, you know, use kind of patterns to, to this. Um, the obvious ones are using data internally, or I call indirect data monetization, where you're improving 
the performance of a business process or improving a relationship, right? Or um, using data to identify new markets or new product opportunities, you know, things that are more intrinsic to, to the business. Um, and then there's um, direct data monetization, which is more external where you're selling data, selling data products, selling insights to, to others. Um, and not necessarily selling them for cash, but maybe bartering mm -hmm. for goods and services. There's a particular advantage to bartering with data for uh, commercial favors or uh, goods and services. And that is you avoid uh, the tax implications of that. So if you're selling data for cash, it lands on the, you know, the income statement. If you are trading information for better commercial terms or in return for some goods and services, mm. um, that that doesn't hit the, that doesn't, you know, I'm not here to give tax advice, um, but that doesn't hit the, you know, the income statement. A classic example of that is you go into the, uh, where's my card here? You go into the uh, grocery store and you scan your loyalty card, right? Mm -hmm. You are getting a discount on groceries, but we all know what's really happening. What's really happening is we're exchanging information about us and our purchase for free food. It's a barter transaction. Mm -hmm. If we use cash, we wouldn't get that discount, right? We wouldn't get that free food. But because we're using our loyalty card mm -hmm. or even a credit card, maybe we're getting some something in return. You know, so we know the grocery is store is using that data to, to grow its business in some way, or maybe even selling that data to other um, data product companies. But um, we, we don't care. We're getting free food from it. <laughs> exactly. So that kind of thing is starting to happen more and more in the in the business world as well, where businesses are realizing that they are sitting on a gold mine of data that mm -hmm. maybe has particular value for them, but maybe much larger value to partners or suppliers or or customers or or others. Um, so um, so that you can barter with data, you can sell data, you can put it on marketplaces. There are uh, marketplace applications like DAOX and. Uh, Demist data and others where you can resell your your data. Um, Eagle Alpha is one that resells to the the, the trading firms. Um, and then there's kind of a new way that we've um, that th that we've identified. Um, certainly due to to privacy regulations, companies are hesitant to um, avail their customer data, right? No, and there are obviously regulations about selling. Your, your customer data due to privacy regulations. And when companies come to me and they say, yeah, we can't monetize our customer data because of GDPR or whatever regulation, I say, well, you're, you're just not thinking about it mm -hmm. creatively enough. I can't sell you my customer data, but I can sell your stuff to my customers, right? Yeah. And take a referral fee or a commission on that. So an example is we're working with a, a hospital. Mm-hmm obviously can't sell its patient data, but this hospital knows who its diabetes patients are, right? And um, it can't sell that data to anybody, but it can sell them uh, healthy meal plans or gym memberships or at-home glucose monitoring, you know, testing kits, and then take a piece of that action, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a win-win-win for everybody. You know, the, the, the diabetes patients get better services, not just hospital services. Yeah. The companies that are making products to serve that population, you know, grow. And then the hospital itself gets, gets a cut. And certainly here in the US, uh, and I don't know about other parts of the world, but hospitals are paid more on patients who don't return 
for the same condition within mm-hmm. a certain period of time. Yep. Um, that's the Affordable Care Act or known as Ob- Obamacare here. So there's, a, there's really an incentive to keep people away from the, the hospital. And if this can help them do that, then it helps them make even more money. So we, I refer to that as, uh, uh, as inverted data monetization. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And um, I, I used to work in, in finance. Um, now I'm working in healthcare and yep. we're working with hospitals and it's all about that, helping avoid uh, the readmission for the same condition. So this, right. is, this is an excellent example. Readmission, um, that's the word I was looking for. When, when I worked in, in banking, um, we, we, what we did was for people that got a new home loan, uh, we worked with furniture companies mm. to give them specific offers to people getting the new home loan and trying to tie it um, right. that way. Yeah, which worked really well. And that's that's what, what cases where I was like, I wish I wish I, I read yeah. Doug, Doug's book earlier. Right. Um, so here's the thing: companies get fixated on doing this one way, on monetizing yeah. their data one way. And again, because it's this non-rivalrous, non-depleting asset, you should be thinking about any and all ways that you can monetize your data, not just get fixated on one of them. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And um, another one that, that you described that I really like is the the value add. And mm-hmm. I've, I've spent most of my time working on, on B2B side. And whenever right. I've, uh, myself and my teams, whenever we've developed new products, we've started as being a value add on top mm-hmm. of, typically on top of the company's more profitable uh, products um, in order to get more customers to take that yeah. up mm-hmm. and then build it to a point that the right. product stands up on its own. Sorry? I didn't even mention that. That's one of the other ways, which is baking data into a product or service. So if you've got a product or service and you can infuse data or analytics into that product or service to make it that much more valuable or useful or differentiate it from others, that's another way to monetize your data. Yeah, yeah. And and in my case, because I've spent most of my time in, in B2B, I, uh, mm-hmm. I find that I, that I think about those type of, um, those type of value add and, and uses of data. But on the B2C mm-hmm. side, there's so much... Um, there's so much, I think, that can be done. So much more that can be done um, by by yeah. providing people that that end-to-end service, um, which is really good. Um, yeah. Is there is there anything on on monetizing information that that we haven't covered yet? Do you think? No, but I, I want to go back to valuing data a little bit. Yes. I talked about ways to financially value data, but there are other ways to value data as well that companies need to be thinking about, and that is. Uh, um, generating data quality metrics on data, understanding Mm -hmm. data's relevancy or potential value um, to one or more business processes, and looking perhaps at its impact on non-financial key performance indicators. And where things get really interesting, and I hadn't even anticipated this, but many of my clients who are using these models are starting to juxtapose them in in innovative ways. They are identifying, uh, like one company identified data that has a low economic value, right? A low, a low you know, financial value in terms of what it's delivering to the bottom line, but has a high degree of relevancy across the business. And so they said, well, that's data that is underperforming for us. Mm. So we need to find ways to better utilize that data. This is a, a manufacturing company um, of, of security systems. And they said, you know, we're not gonna change the business at all. We're just gonna better use the data that we have throughout the organization, they ended up adding $300 million of market value on a $2 billion business after they you know, implemented these ideas. You know, another company took another approach, which was, you know, we've got all this data and it's costing us money. Um, let's look at ways to leverage it. Well, we're in a regulated industry, we're an energy company, and so we can't really do more with this data than we're already doing. So let's just make a defensible deletion 
or defensible mm -hmm. you know, disposal um, business case to offload this data that we're not that we don't need and that we're not using and it's costing us more than the value it's generating they're saving millions of dollars a year in unnecessary infrastructure costs is it like crazy yeah <laughs> sorry to drop um, i love that example keep going sorry. so there are all sorts of you know innovative ways that, that clients are, are juxtaposing these um, data valuation models to drive certain kinds of behaviors internally that's been uh, really heartwarming to see yeah, i just wrote about a new way that um Highways England is using to value its data. Um, mm -hmm. I wrote about that in Forbes uh, last month. Yeah, amazing. And what, what, how, how are they going about it? Um, they took a more of a kind of interesting and kind of in-depth approach that I'm not going to get into here, but um, it, it, the, the chief data officer there used this uh, approach to, um, to, to radically change the culture. Um, in the organization, yeah, yeah amazing, been, been amazing to see. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll put the the link on the on the show notes because that sure. that is sure. that is amazing. Um, yeah. We've got a, a a few more more questions here okay. from from the audience. One is about um, data governance. So it says, how do we get our organization to understand data governance? How would you approach setting up a governance team and start the journey to start the journey to appreciating data value? Yeah, so. Making the business case for data governance, um, you know, maybe as simple as saying, hey, there are certain regulations that we need to adhere to, and we have no business process or no operating model to ensure that we're adhering to mm -hmm. the ways that this data needs to be managed or handled. Um, so that, that's, you know, that's, that's the first way. The next way is to um, identify uh, anecdotes where there have been data quality issues or data mismanagement or mishandling kind of issues and use those anecdotes to um, set up a program, but I think um, uh, that, that it's just as uh, important to, to, to measure things, to measure data quality mm -hmm. and measure the impact of poor data quality on the business. Um, and that, that actually, you know, can, can be done. And the valuation models that I published, um, you know, include ways to value certain kinds of data quality characteristics like accuracy and completeness and timeliness and integrity and scarcity and believability and, and so forth. Um, so, and then tying those to the business processes that are using that data. One um, financial services company, uh, AIG, um, uh, their chief data officer um, identified data that was, um, they actually tied data, go data governance, data quality metrics to business process improvement. So he, he can now track how a 1% increase in data accuracy or a 3% increase in data completeness affects the business processes that use that data. Um, so I, I don't think there's any you know, better way to build a business case or prove the value of data governance. Now, setting it up is a whole nother thing. How do you create that operating model? How do you assign the different kinds of roles like data stewards? Um, I, I just give people you know, a few kind of tidbits of, of maybe an, uh, unconventional wisdom on, on mm -hmm. data governances, and that is, the role of the data steward is pretty well defined, and I, you know, I won't go into to detail on that. But somebody you know, creates the data definitions and, and policies around around the data. Um, I think it's important to have those data stewards, stewards also become data advocates. They should be tasked with and incentivized on helping the business use that data more than they are, mm -hmm. not just you know govern it better. There's an offense and defense yes. side to to data stewardship. Um, the second is the, the concept of the data owner. And uh, the first thing everybody wants to do when they set up a data governance program is assign owners mm, to, to mm, data. Mm. Um, and I think that concept of an owner is 
uh, the concept is good. Somebody who's, you know, accountable and responsible for a data asset, but that moniker of owner is one that just perpetuates data hoarding and and data silos yes. all day long. I think it's a, I think it's the worst term or role that we've ever come up with mm-hmm. <laughs> in the world of data management. Um, and so when I started looking across the way that other assets are managed, which is a, a big part of the book, I look at the way physical assets and financial assets and uh, records management and human capital are all managed and what we can learn from those ideas and bring them into the, the data management fold. Um, one of those ideas is the concept that comes from financial uh, management of the trustee. Mm-hmm. A trustee is somebody who is uh, uh, accountable and legally and ethically accountable and responsible for a particular asset, but they don't own it, right? They're the caretaker of it, but they don't, they don't necessarily own it. So I think that that concept of a trustee or a fiduciary is one that we should be using instead of a, instead of a, a, a data owner. I so, love it. Yeah. Oh man. I, I love it. <laughs> I, <laughs> I love your, um, yeah, your your approach because I've seen I've seen so many um, technical delivery teams, uh, the data scientists, come yeah. in into into battle with uh, with the data governance people when my data exactly <laughs> yeah, and when the data governance people see their job as saying no, yeah. saying no to use cases, saying no to new products, saying and you've completely flipped yeah. that dynamic and you give everyone a a unifying uh, goal and you challenge people, everyone to think about the, the, the value uh, that can be acquired from, mm-hmm. from the data from through all different yeah. perspectives. I love it. <laughs> I yeah, love thanks. it. Um, um, next, I, I do have a, a couple other questions, which I'll, I'll ask you at the end. We'll go through a couple of the, the audience right. questions. Um, um, yeah. But at the end, I want to ask you about the, the, um, the CDO certificate program that you're um, that you're involved in now, which sounds mm-hmm. super exciting. Uh, but from from the audience, uh, we have from Barry. Question is: Where do you see da- data trusts, and uh, in your view of data as an asset? So I think data this trusts. Is a, I'm not sure what he means by that. Yeah, I think I think it'll be related to the to the data trustees yeah. probably. The, to the um, data trustee. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not exactly sure how to, how to answer that. I mean, I think the, the data trustee is somebody within the organization. It's not somebody outside the organization. Mm. You know, we are seeing some examples of, of what I call an extended um, information ecosystem where um, I, as a larger organization, a larger, maybe big retailer, am managing the data, the transaction data, the product information about the products from small suppliers, right? And becoming a, a, a center of gravity for that kind of master data. So in that regard, I become the trustee of data that is not necessarily mine, but that comes from my suppliers or, or partners. So we are starting to see that kind of extended ecosystem thing happening. I don't know if that answers the question, but it, it made me think of that concept. That's fantastic. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Uh, the next one's from Craig uh, mm-hmm. asking about the, the changes in accounting standards. Uh, so when do you think accounting standards will change to allow data to be included in financial statements, especially um, when we see major US airlines refinancing uh, based on their frequent flyer uh, databases? Somebody read my, my other Forbes article. <laughs> hey, nice one. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's a great story there. I'll, I'll, let me key in on that for a second. 
the uh, the airlines, particularly United Airlines and American and Delta here in the U.S., were having you know, obviously some financial difficulties. Um, are having financial difficulties due to the the pandemic and people not flying, and so they needed to take out loans. Well, mm-hmm. if you're an airline, what do you have to collateralize? Mm. Right. The, the obvious answer is oh, they're airplanes. The problem is most airlines don't own the airplanes; they lease them. So you really can't collateralize a lease. Um, so what do they own? They own customer data. They own mm-hmm. cust- their customer loyalty programs. And so these airlines all look to some banks to say, listen, we want to borrow from you. And all we really have to offer for collateral is, well, maybe some, some gate rights and things like that, but also our, our customer loyalty programs. And the valuation experts who, who looked at that data determined that the value of the customer loyalty programs was worth two to three times more than the companies themselves. Amazing. So United Airlines is worth about $9 billion. The value of their customer loyalty data was determined to be 20 to $30 billion. So the article that I wrote was, you know, your, your company's data may be more valuable than your company itself. Yeah. Amazing. So, all right. Back to the original question. What was the, read me the original question again. Um, so it was, um, when do you think accounting oh, standards accounting will change uh, right, to right. allow data? So there have been some changes, like if you're a data broker, if you're a company that is in the business of selling data and you purchase a database from another company, um, you actually now can, I think according to IFRS, can um, capitalize that or recognize it as an intangible asset with a straight line depreciation. Um, But only for data, I've only seen that for data brokers so far. But other than that, um, I know that the accounting standards boards are discussing the matter of recognizing other kinds of intangibles, including data, but there are, there's a lot of devil in the details there. Um, how do you recognize it? When do you recognize its mm. value? What method do you use? Um, how do you record it? Uh, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of questions to be answered. Um, so I, I would say, let's not worry about, you know, what the accountants say. Let's, let's worry about understanding internally the value of this data and maybe creating internal balance sheets for the value of data. Yeah, I love it. Um, yeah. I I have to tell you when when uh, we when I was in banking, we we're looking at mm-hmm. ways to to monetize the the data and working with with large corporations. Mm-hmm. Um, we identified businesses, large businesses in Australia, where they were getting sometimes twenty percent of their revenue from interstate travel. Um, yeah. And some of them were like theme restaurants and specific mm-hmm. type of clothing uh, shops and things like that. Um, so we went to them with a with a partnership ar- arrangement because we could essentially say we know we know which airlines most of that twenty percent of your revenue comes mm-hmm. from, um, right. and and they worked wonders. <laughs> so yeah. everyone, um, yeah, everyone won. Mm-hmm. And Simone's asking about um, links to the articles, so we will we will and get Simone, those. Yeah, we we will. Yeah, we'll put those on the on the show notes. Um, then we have a a uh, comment slash um, suggestion uh, from Atif saying, um, "Doug, can we could we rename this webinar to data capitalization? Do you think it, this is a good verb to represent monetizing, managing, and measuring data?" Oh, sh- sure, I I, I don't um, I don't have any like rights to the to the word infonomics. I decided um, to. To keep it kind of like, um, I used to work for, for a gentleman called uh, Bill Inman, who's the known as the the father of the data warehouse. Yeah, piece. yeah. And so wow. I worked for his company um, called Prism Solutions. It's now part of I think IBM. Mm. And um, 
you know, I asked him, Bill, why didn't you ever trademark the term data warehouse? He said, well, because then I'd be the only one who was using it. (laughs) (laughs) You'd rather be known as the father of the data warehouse concept. And and for me, it's really, it's, it's not about, you know, my ideas. I'm, I'm very, I'm quite keen to, to have others build on this idea. And this is why I, I teach this MBA class and this mm. CDO class, I want people to build on these ideas. Um, I can only take them so far, right? And um, uh, my, my, my goal, my, my bucket list goal is to have one of my students win a, win a, a Nobel Prize in economics for kind of building on some of these ideas. <laughs> amazing, amazing. And oh. man, I got to say your Infonomics course uh, on Coursera has amazing ratings. Um, it is, Thank you, yeah. It's incredible, yeah. And like thousands of people. Um, yeah, I think about 10,000 people have taken it so far. It's a two-part course. Four weeks each, uh, we go into the, the management, monetizing, and measuring data. There's now a, a capstone course as well, which is a full data monetization project. Amazing. That is incredible. Yeah. Um, and also, tell me about the, the Carnegie Mellon Chief Data Officer Certificate Program. Yeah, so it's something we're just starting at uh, Carnegie Mellon University, and it's a six-month program. Um, not every day, of course, but it's for... Uh, you know, chief data officers and aspirational chief data officers or data and analytics leaders. Um, there's some networking involved, obviously, and um, courses on data science and data management and data visualization and data monetization, um, data literacy. It's going to be really, really excellent. So, Oh, man, I'm super excited. I'm super, super excited. Um, and is there is there anything that I um, haven't asked you about? Anything that you're that you're seeing out there? Anything um, changes that might have surprised you? Anything that I haven't uh, asked you about so far? You know, you you're, we were going to talk a little bit about you know building and managing teams. And while I don't mm-hmm. typically you know do that myself, I, I, I tend to try to you know surround myself by by a lot of diversity. You know, people who are young and old, or technical and non-technical, uh, from different races and backgrounds and. Uh, sexual orientations and, and everything. And it's not just for developing new ideas, but everybody brings a new unique way of getting things done as well. Um, so I, I really revel in, in all the new ideas. And I love that the University of Illinois um, MBA and Masters of Accounting program um, and the course I teach uh, on Infonomics brings in students from all over the world. I've had students from you know, Russia and Mexico and Australia and Japan and China and Korea. It's been been amazing. Um, and everybody brings like unique ideas and perspectives that uh, often I've never, never thought of. So. Man, that is, yeah. that is incredible. That is incredible. Yeah. Doug, um, thank you so much yeah. uh, for, for sharing your, your thoughts, your approaches, your knowledge and insights um, and all the, and thank you for all your contributions that you've, given the industry over over decades of extremely hard work um yeah we we are all a better um because of because of wow. them because of your contributions so Felipe, thank you're, you so you're much. too generous very kind thank you very much no i yeah to 100 percent. yeah it is and i look forward fantastic. to engaging any of your your listeners on an ongoing basis people can reach out to me on linkedin and connect um ask any additional questions that, that you want and um, always ha- love to speak with people who have read the book and you know, have some new ideas. Amazing. So the book is Infonomics. Uh, we'll add the link in the show notes. Mm. Um, there will be uh, another book coming out. So we'll share that when, when it does come out. And Thank you. No, this has been uh, fantastic. So 
Doug, thank you so much for your time. We're getting really nice comments saying, uh, very useful to hear all this. Love the session. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Thank Stephanie. you so much. Have a great evening. Thanks, Simon. Thanks, everyone. Cheers. Have a great day. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.